Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Star Line by a writer from New Orleans. You've seen his work at the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, among other places. His book, The Mission, is available now. We welcome David W. Brown. Thank you very much for having me today. David, let's go beyond the mic. Your book has a long subtitle, How a Disciple of Carl Sagan, an ex-motocross racer, a Texas Tea Party congressman, the world's worst type writer saleswoman, California mountain people, and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, and stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside the ice world called Europa. A true story. Whose idea was this? So I was adamant that we not have a subtitle to the book. And my editor was adamant that we have like a five-word subtitle. So we compromised at 83 words. 83? Jeez. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I decided to make it a challenge. Okay, if you want to have a subtitle, I'm going to give you a subtitle. They say every every author has uh, as his greatest uh, challenge to live up to the subtitle. So I wanted the reader to walk into the bookstore and know exactly what they were getting. When you made the subtitle, was it you're thinking, maybe I could get into the Guinness Book of World Records just on the subtitle alone? You know, it's not something that I've looked into, but one thing I did not realize is that I was going to break every database in publishing. Amazon.com, HarperCollins, all of the various background sort of affiliate publishing websites, none of them really were able to to ingest the subtitle and and display it on screen. So I do have the virtue of having almost broken publishing. Seven years to write the book, 57 pages of just reference notes at the end of the book. I was very careful when I was writing the book to make sure that I had a set start date to tell the story and a set end date. So the book actually ends in 2015, and I knew anything that happened after 2015 I could disregard because the story has its its end point. And this book, although it's, it's a big book, I admit, but it's actually 40% shorter than the first draft that I handed in. But it's a big story. I mean, this is a story with huge stakes. It's about a, sort of a team of scientists, engineers, who spent 20 years trying to convince NASA to send a spacecraft to an ocean world called Europa. It, it orbits Jupiter. It's about the size of our moon, but it has three times more water than the planet Earth. And if there's anywhere else in the solar system that has life, it's there. Those kinds of stakes, I mean, life unrelated to that on Earth, what does that even mean for science, for religion, for philosophy? Those are the biggest stakes you could possibly have when telling a story. It just so happened that the cast of characters in this book live up to it. It's quite an adventure story, I think. As you unpack this absolutely complex story, how did the multitude of characters from administrators to scientists come together when they have their own motivations? That's what's interesting about this book. It's, It's a book about how different people handle crossroads in their lives. And in the case of Europa, it just so happened to be that they all converged on this very similar, intriguing, and challenging target. There's nothing easy about exploring Europa. It exists in what's called the Jovian Radiation Belt, um, which has conditions not unlike the immediate aftermath of a detonated thermonuclear bomb. It's really hard on spacecraft. It's impossible to explore with astronauts. But Beneath an ice shell that surrounds Europa, much like the western half of Antarctica just sort of sits on top of the water, beneath that ice shell are all the ingredients you need for life. It has water. It has organics. It has chemistry and and a source of energy, in this case being vents of water blasting into the bottom of the ocean. Accordingly, 
you're going to attract people with different interests and abilities, whether you're a Star Trek ex-college professor, whether you're a former office supply saleswoman who decided to take correspondence courses and, and change her life and go on to become one of the most prominent and, and important scientists in the world today, whether you're a bureaucrat in the middle of NASA who decides, hey, this is kind of cool. I think I'm going to make, I'm going to find a way to make the agency do this. Whether you're a congressman who's not all that particularly powerful or interesting, but you do like space. All of these people just coalesced around this project and, and found a way to make it happen. You're invested in this seven years into this project. How excited will you be when Clipper flies? There aren't a lot of enterprises in this world that, in which people do something fairly selflessly. These people aren't driving Ferraris or BMWs. They're driving Toyota Tercels. And yet they devote themselves to 80-hour work weeks doing these impossible things, spending time at conferences away from their families. People who do that sort of work deserve our gratitude. We benefit from it every day. Why do you love science? It's one of those things where I don't know that I could possibly answer that question. I, I went to the Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland, not long ago, and I saw the wiring harness that's going to fly to Jupiter, like the wiring inside the spacecraft. It's built separately from the rest of it. And I got to touch it, and it was this deeply human and humbling, thrilling moment. And I was moved in ways that I didn't expect. It's just a piece of wire, but, but it, it was important. How can NASA survive in an era when privatization of space work is booming? Things like rockets are a great source of profit. The private sector is just going to be better at NASA, better at building them than NASA is. At the same time, things like fundamental research, you know, exploring a place like Europa to find life. There's really no money to be made doing that. And so NASA's always going to have a role doing fundamental research. NASA's job should also be to push outward, to do things that no one else has thought to do yet. And after they blaze that trail, then the private sector can come in and, you know, find a way to, to, to make money from that. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rockin' 8. Eight random questions answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There's no pressure. Bring it on. Favorite Skyrim character to play? Sithis. You can't play Sithis, but you can be in the Dark Brotherhood. <laughs> Best thing about Antarctica? Leaving. Favorite rover? I'm going to go with Curiosity. What's the best musical in your opinion? Ooh, Sunset Boulevard. Biggest lesson you ever learned from your time in the Army? Don't join the Army. The one lesson you want your daughter to learn? Gosh. Um, be good to yourself. Forgive yourself whenever you run into tough things in life. Favorite ride at Disney World? The Carousel of Progress. And the best wine you ever had? Ooh. I'm going to go with something easy. I'm just going to say any bottle of Beauclicot on any given day. His favorite rover is Curiosity Loves the Carousel of Progress at Disney World. His book is The Mission, and we thank author David W. Brown for his service in the Army and for his time today. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. Beyond the Mic.